Well, it's a pleasure to be here today to take the handoff um, in the midst of the uh, uh, book of Esther. It's really tricky preaching a narrative. And then, so does Chuck say, well, okay, you take this part of the story and then I'll take that one. So hopefully that'll go well. My wife often tells me that about exciting dramas she sees on Netflix and says, oh, you really would like this one. But I'm watching the fifth season and you really need to go back and watch the first few episodes or you won't know what's going on. And I think that's kind of the way it is with reading the book of Esther. We're jumping right into the middle of the story here. And just in case you're now tuning in, I'm going to review some previous episodes in the story. Um, and before we even get to the book of Esther, I think we have to look further back in the Old Testament to have, even have some context for this book. The Old Testament describes how God revealed himself in his will to the Jewish people. But sadly, the Old Testament is a constant story about how Israel failed to live up to God's will. And as a result of repeated disobedience, God sent the nation into exile into foreign lands. And there was a series of superpowers that had conquered the nation, starting with the Assyrians, then the Babylonians, then the Persians, and the Greeks, and the Romans. And if you didn't guess, one superpower conquered another. And in the middle of all this, that little land of Israel was kind of the football that got tossed around because everybody wanted that little piece of land, which was the prime trading route between Asia Europe and uh, Africa and the Middle East. And so the Jews kind of got trampled by one superpower after another. Well, we're in the middle of that time when the um, Persians have control of the, the Middle East. And the book of Esther is written describing a period around 480 BC. Now, a few decades before this story, the Jews had been permitted to go back to Jerusalem and to start to rebuild the temple. But the vast majority of Jews still lived in various parts of the Persian Empire. The king of Persia was despotic and unpredictable. His name was Ahasuerus, and he sometimes went by the Greek name, Xerxes, both of which are miserable to pronounce. <laughs> Um, Ahasuerus was intolerant of non-Persian religions, and that's a whole story in itself and the history of that. But I think that partially explains the hesitancy of this book to even mention the name of God. Because frankly, to overtly speak about another God and to follow another religion was dangerous in the Persian Empire. And yet, even though the book doesn't directly mention God, if you know the Old Testament, and if you look for certain clues, you can see God's footprints all throughout the book. And what I want to do is mention a few of those things today as we look at this story. Now, the story as we've seen it so far is this king in a drunken rage divorced his queen. And then he decided it would be a great idea to command all the young teenage girls to come and spend a one-night stand with him so he could pick the one he wanted for his next queen. And Queen uh, Esther got lucky. Well, no, that doesn't sound right, does it? Okay, there's a double meaning there, isn't there? 
But actually, that's kind of what happened. And he said, I like you best. And so she ended up um, as the new queen. Now, her uncle, Mordecai, who up to that time had been taking care of her, had overheard a plot to kill the king. And so because of that, he had uh, uh, warned the king and the king's life was saved. And we're going to see that's key to this story today. Shortly thereafter, rather than Mordecai getting honored, a Persian official got um, promoted to be the highest of the uh, court officials, and so he had a lot of power. His name was Haman, and he also figures big in this story because Haman was of a people group that was an historic enemy of the Jews. And so you're going to see in the story that he has kind of this historic vendetta. He always refers to as Mordecai the Jew. You know, it's just that kind of uh, anger that he has towards the Jews. Haman was a proud man who flaunted his story, his authority, and he was offended because Mordecai refused to bow down and honor him in his royal position. So. Um, Haman then bribed the king to issue a decree that all the Jews would be exterminated. And then they cast lots, which in the Persian word were called Purim, and the king appointed then a day based on the lots of when it was legal for one day to kill all the Jews. Um, and the story ends last week with this account of the Jews fasting and mourning because of uh, hoping to avert this genocide. So the story we're going to read today, Chuck decided, I'll do a chapter each week. You get three chapters. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, but this is the climax of the story. And as you'll see, it's kind of hard to just sort of pick and choose a few verses because it just all pulls together. And once things get into motion, uh, it heads towards a certain end at this point. Now, as I read the story, there's two themes I want you to watch for. One theme is the destructiveness of pride. And this is illustrated by Haman in his uh, prideful vendetta against the Jewish people that ultimately leads to his public humiliation and death. And then secondly, uh, spoiler by the way, um, and then secondly, is God's sovereign care for his people. And this is more subtle, this is more hidden, and I'm going to show you that if you know the Old Testament, you'll pick these clues up. If you don't, you won't. And that's kind of the way this book works. It's kind of in code language to those who know the history of the Jews and what God had promised to them. And if you know that, then you see how God is at work. So, the Jews were fasting for three days, and according to ancient Jewish sources that go back as early as the second century B.C., not only were they fasting, but they were praying. And some of those prayers of Esther and some of the uh, fasting and prayers of Mordecai and so on are recorded in non-biblical sources. But they show us uh, that looking at it from uh, you know outside, it was like, okay, these are just Jews. From the inside, the Jews were really saying, God, rescue us. And so Esther put together a plan. And let's read in Esther chapter 5. On the third day, which is the third day of the fast, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne. Verse 3, the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? 
it shall be given to you, even to half of my kingdom. Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. So the king and Haman come to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking the wine after the feast, the king told Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted you. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleased the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I have prepared for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has asked. Now, you know, unless you think you have double vision or something, there actually are two feasts here. Um, it's sort of like, you know, someone that gets a genie, you know, he rubs the bottle, gets a genie and says, and what is your wish? Oh, I want lots more wishes. And that's basically what she said. My wish is that you come again and hear my wish. So why is she doing this? Well, Ahasuerus, um, we'll call him the big A to save me from stumbling, was a notorious drunkard. And he, in fact, was mocked by his enemies because they said he made all his big decisions while he was drunk. And, of course, you read this story, it's been apparent that he had, he started, the story starts with six months of a drinking party, and he had that kind of pattern. So Esther knew that if she wanted to get what she wanted, and he was going to make an impulsive decision, she needed just to get him a little bit softened up. Um, <laughs> okay, so, here's what happens. Now, Haman thinks he's being honored. He says... Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, and he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions which the king had honored him and how he'd advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. Yet, all of this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. So, here's Haman. He's honored. The queen invites him to this private banquet with the king. And he's excited, but his joy is quenched as soon as he leaves the palace. And there's Mordecai just refusing to bow to him. So you can see the pride of this man, and it really climaxes in this section. He's very cocky. He goes home and he starts crowing to his friends and his wife, Look how rich and powerful I am, and look at all my wealth, and how the king has advanced me to the highest rank of royal officials. And then, it's not enough, I mean, he's one of these guys, it isn't just enough to say, look, I got this promotion, he says, well, I started down here, and then he promoted me here, and then he promoted me here, he kind of goes through his whole history of all the great honors and promotions he got. And then he brags about his virility, look at all the sons I've sired. And his magnificent importance is proven by the fact that he gets this private honor of being with the king and the queen for dinner. So... You think, like, this guy has it made. He's reached the highest position anybody could in that country at the time. And yet he's not satisfied with all his accomplishments just because there's this one guy. This one guy that refused to acknowledge that he's great. 
And he says, it's Mordecai the Jew. And you can just hear him sneering. You know, this is the time when it sort of becomes clear and the term starts to be used to express that hatred that his people had historically had against the Jews. Um, and now, what what's going on here? There's kind of two themes operating. We said we're going to look at the theme of pride and we're going to look at the theme of God's sovereign care for his people. Here, pride just screams at you, doesn't it? It warns us of the dangers of pride. Pride is fundamentally self-centered. You see how Haman sees everything in terms of himself. Every event is measured about how it affects him. He assumes the banquet is to honor him because he's so great. Pride leads to superiority. You know, it's not enough that he's had great achievements. It's that he's advanced above everybody else, you see. So he puts it that way because a prideful person is not happy just to win. Other people have to lose. Pride is fed by receiving honor from others. Pride leads to boasting. And a prideful person is often wounded if he's not recognized and honored and acknowledged by others. And if he doesn't get his way, a prideful person can become angry. And you see all those things in Haman. So, because Haman did not receive honor from this one Jew, Mordecai, he puts in place a plan to eliminate his enemy. So, verse 14. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Let a gallows fifty cubits high be made, that's 75 feet, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman. And he had the gallows made. Now, you know, this kind of wife is just not a big help. And do you need friends like this? You know what friends are supposed to do? If you have true friends, they say, uh, you know, you're kind of going to get in trouble there if you pursue that course. Friends, you need to support your friends by warning them about their weaknesses and helping them to become stronger and not fall into sin. And what did they do? They just encouraged him and kind of made things a little worse by saying, hey, look, you can deal with your problem this way. So uh, he had the authority to do this because of his high office. And in fact, the decree had already been in place that on uh, one day, which I'll call whacking day, um, no, some of you knew, I couldn't resist that, you know. Those of you who watch The Simpsons know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Okay, the one day the Jews could be slaughtered. You couldn't kill a Jew any other day, but on that day you can kill all the Jews and steal all their property. And he said, why don't I just speed it up for this one guy? So, um, now the gallows, and I think Chuck mentioned this last week, the gallows were actually a wooden pipe. They would take, um, and there's actually an Assyrian carving in stone that shows kind of what it's like. Uh, they would take these long poles, they'd ram it up your spine and hang you from it. And they made it so you'd last a long, long time uh, up there. It was, a, it was a predecessor to crucifixion. And so uh, it isn't a gallows in the sense of hanging a person from a rope. Now, the point of it was to humiliate you and shame you in front of everybody. Um, and... 
that a lot could be said about that in terms of an honor-shame culture. But basically, this is the form of execution that was common in this, this uh, culture. <clears throat> so, um, what, what you see here is another characteristic of pride, and that is putting down others. And that's really what he wants to do. If he can put down, if he can shame Haman, then that exalts, uh, sorry, if he can shame Mordecai, then Haman is exalted. And that's the way he thinks. Now, you know, at this point, it's easy to look down in, on Haman. In fact, when Jews celebrate uh, Purim, they act out this little play. And part of it is somebody gets to put on a mask and be Haman, and he's kind of a comic figure, and they mock him and stuff, and all the little kids mock him. It's easy to do that. It's easy to look at a guy like this, a tragic figure, and say, look at all his flaws. The problem is, pride is really hard to recognize in yourself. You can see it in others. You can't see it in yourself. It's the nature of pride to be self-deceptive. Because if you're self-centered, you kind of measure everything in terms of your own viewpoint in your own life. And we can see others that are ambitious and insistent on always winning, boastful, power-hungry, snobbish. There's lots of way pride reflects itself. But sometimes it's internal. Sometimes people don't speak it out or act it out, but inside they feel superior. Or um, they, um, The other way is to have poor self-esteem. Because in the end, if you have poor self-esteem, it's still about you, isn't it? So, you know, it's kind of pride gets us either way. Romans 12.3 says, through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment. Now, you notice what he's saying is, you know, don't think more highly, but that doesn't mean put yourself down. That means have a reasonable assessment about who you are. Think with sound judgment. Think soberly. Think, you know, in some translations use that, but it's kind of an old word. Uh, sound judgment is a better way to put it. That means to assess your weaknesses, strengths, accomplishments, and failures in light of the fact that God gave all this stuff to you. That's why he says, by God's grace. Because in the end, everything you have and everything you are is because God gave it to you. So, Paul, in fact, discusses that and says that uh, God often brings us into situations that force us to realize our limitations. Why? Because that forces us to realize we need his grace. So Paul said, in fact, he had what he called a thorn in the flesh, which was something, we don't know, probably a physical limitation or a chronic disease that prevented him from thinking, I've got it all together. And he realized, I really need God. So it forced him to think that he needed God's grace. So we shouldn't boast, then he says, in what we've accomplished, but he says, in what God has accomplished in me. And that's the topic of a whole other sermon, Second Corinthians 12. It's a great passage about how God keeps us in a place where we need him. We were made for him. We have to realize that. Now, this process of having our pride exposed can be very painful. Um, when I was a graduate student, I spent far too many years finishing my doctoral dissertation. In fact, uh, the university established a new policy in my honor 
after I graduated saying no longer will anybody be allowed to take that long. So they set a limit on the time. Um, and every year I would go to the society of, uh, it's called the Society of Biblical Literature. It's a society where professors and scholars of Bible study go to um, present research and to discuss major issues in biblical studies. And so usually you go and you present a research paper on ba based on what you've been studying at the time. So um, every year I would go, and I kind of noticed there were certain people that just kind of poofed with pride. You could see them strutting around like, you know, they were God's gift to the universe. And I kind of would feel a little bit ashamed because I had not finished my degree yet, and so I'd kind of slink around, you know. Um, and, you know, either way, it was pride, right? It was thinking in terms of myself. Um, well, finally I graduated. And I went next year to that society meeting, and it felt like the triumphal entry of Jesus to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. <laughs> and I had this research paper that represented several years of work, and I was very excited about it. It was quite unique. And I went to the meeting room at the appointed time, and there was nobody there. Uh, hmm, maybe I got the wrong room. I went outside, looked at the door. No, my name's on the door. I'm supposed to be here. And I sat there all alone, cricket sounding, as they say. And after about 10 minutes, the door opened, and this guy poked his head around the corner. And I leaped up and was so excited. And I said, oh, welcome. You know, it's not too late. You can come. He said, now, I'm the AV guy. I record the meetings, and there was no sound coming through this room. I just wanted to make sure there wasn't a problem with the wiring. <laughs> so I kind of slinked out of there and realized God had fired a warning shot across the bow. He had said, you know, here's a danger. It can become pride. It can become all about yourself. And... I was, I didn't like it at the time, but I was grateful for the experience. First uh, Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. If you're a follower of Christ, God will use situations to root out that pride and to expose you to who you are. And every one of those situations you have a choice to make. I believe even... Haman had choices. I think that for Haman, every time he saw Mordecai, that was his warning. You have a choice to make. Look, you have the honor of everybody in the kingdom. Do you really need this one guy to also acknowledge your greatness? That was a chance for repentance, but he never took it. And now things get out of control. So the next thing that happened hints at God's sovereign working behind the scenes. So now is where you have to tune in with your knowledge of the Old Testament. In chapter 6 of Esther, it says, On that night the king could not sleep. He gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Now, you know, this is a great thing, you know. Um, audio books, aren't they wonderful? In those days, you had eunuchs that read the books to you. <laughs> But, you know, now we have, we just, you know, put it on your tablet or your phone and play an audio book and you can go to sleep. What better thing to go to sleep than have somebody read to you the genealogies of the book of Chronicles? 
Wouldn't that put you to sleep? Well, how about listening to the congressional record and have all the filibusters read to you and all of the, you know, all of the laws and bills that are proposed and all the debate. That's what he was doing. Read us every official act of the king, every pronouncement, every debate, every policy, everything. Read that. I can't sleep. He still didn't sleep. All night he was awake. He couldn't sleep. Just starting to drift off. And then he hears this. It was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigtha and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, who had sought to lay hands on King Hashwaris. The king said, What honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's younger men said to him, Nothing has been done for him. Okay, now... This is an honor and shame culture, and that means if the king did not honor this person for saving his life, you know, he's, he has a major social obligation to him. And so here's what happens. Verse 4. The king had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak... Sorry, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hang on the gallows that he prepared for him. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Hmm. Haman said to himself, hmm, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, and which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden on, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor and let him lead him through the horse, on the horse, through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Great idea. Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and go do it to Mordecai the Jew, who sits at king's gate. Leave nothing out that you've mentioned. <laughs> What a dramatic turnaround. I mean, can you see Haman? He's thinking, oh, this is my chance. I'll just tell him all the things I want. And, of course, he has to do it to his enemy. <laughs> now, the timing is perfect. No one could control this. No one could predict that the king would have trouble sleeping, that he just happened to read that Mordecai hadn't been honored just at that moment when he's saying, how am I going to honor this guy I have a social obligation to? Haman comes in and proposes a perfect solution. You couldn't plan this stuff. The timing is one of the subtle hints that God is behind this. God's sovereignty is actually carried out through the normal events of life. What we call coincidences. But there are too many coincidences in this book. Mordecai just happens to be standing there at the right place to overhear a plot on the king. You know, it's coincidence after coincidence that builds together and you start to say something is going on here more than meets the eye. Mark Driscoll says, coincidence is the non-Christian's word for providence. The eyes of faith see God's hand in the little things of life, not just the big obvious miracles. It's all the little stuff, as Romans 8.28 says, that God causes to work together for good. But Haman is blinded by his pride. 
he perceives himself as the greatest person in the kingdom. So he assumes he's the one the king would honor. But now he's humiliated. He's forced publicly to honor their enemy he wants to destroy. And this shows another side of pride. The prideful person has a lot of difficulty when someone else gets honor. Well, Haman returns home to lick his wounds and to get sympathy from his wife and friends, so he invites all of them over, you know, all this sympathetic group that tells him what he wants to hear. But this time, they don't say what he wants to hear. Now, Esther 6.13 is one of the pivotal verses in the book. Haman told his wife, Sarah, and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife, Sarah, said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. Now, this is one of those little hints that if you read the rest of the Old Testament, makes a great deal of sense. Apart from it, it's kind of in code language. The book of Old uh, Esther assumes that you know the scriptures. And it know, assumes in particular that you know all the covenants that God made to Israel. A covenant is a legal agreement, a contract, where per, you know the parties say, this is what we're going to do. And in the contracts that God makes with people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, he says, these are the blessings I'm going to give you. So, one of the critical ones is Genesis 12, which is the covenant God made with Abraham. And this covenant um, says this, I will make of you, speaking to Abraham, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, I'm going to come back to this verse in a few minutes, but I just want to look at the part that's relevant to this chapter. God promised that he would protect his people, the Israelites. And the covenant with Abraham is repeated several times and it kind of gets fleshed out. It becomes clear that it's going to be through Isaac that the blessing will occur and that the, the people of blessing will occur and not through Ishmael. Um, and... But Haman's wife makes reference to this, and there is an awareness that um, if Haman opposes Mordecai, and by extension the rest of the Jewish people, he will fall under this curse and will be destroyed. And the Old Testament is full of times this happened. I mean, really? Joseph? His brothers were jealous. They sold him to slavery. For the first they threw him in a pit. Then they said, well, we get some money out of this, so they sold him into slavery. All that did was allow Joseph to get into a place of power in Egypt eventually, where when there was a famine, he could feed the whole nation. Okay? And the book of Genesis repeats this refrain, you intended it for evil, God intended it for good. And it's just over and over and over again. Now, the story of Joseph is one of those training lessons that shows you how God works care for his people. The book of Esther is the final exam. Did you pay attention? Did you know that God said he would protect his people? Even if I take away the name of God, will you notice? See, that's where we live, isn't it? There's nothing that says, oh yes, God is working here, but you have to have the eyes of faith to see that. And that's what the book of Esther does. But it has these little hints that reminds you. How about the Exodus? 
Pretty dramatic, huh? Pretty obvious. God is protecting his people. Parting the Red Sea, they escape, and then the Egyptian armies are pursuing, and, and all the enemies are destroyed. And many, many times, David, you know, Saul attempted to kill David, and so on. And even in the exile, God preserved a remnant. He didn't allow the, the Jewish people destroyed. So, all this is going on, and if, if you think of that promise, and you think of Zeresh's reference to the promise, Haman is like thinking about it, but it's too late. Things are set into motion now, and he doesn't even have a chance to think about what that means, and then he's grabbed by the king's officials and taken to the feast. Chapter 7. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther, and on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. Then Queen Esther answered, if I found favor in your sight, O king, and if I please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. Get the point? If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Hashuera said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he and who has dared to do this? Esther said, A foe and an enemy, wicked Haman. And Haman, sorry. <laughs> then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Now, up to this time, the king didn't know Esther was a Jew. He had, you know, taken the bribe that all the Jews would be exterminated and he didn't realize his own queen was among them. So it shocked the king. Verse 7, the king arose in his wrath from his wine drinking and went into the palace garden, but Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the pictures, by the way, are from Rembrandt. They're the ones I've had have been his interpretations of these events. The king returned from the palace guard, the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. In other words, put a bag over his head, take him away for execution. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance to the king, said, Moreover, the gallows is, that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai, and then the wrath of the king abated. So here's the climax, the ironic turnaround of the story. Haman is executed on the very pike he'd prepared to execute Mordecai. And it is through this dramatic event that God spared Mordecai and the other Jewish people from the anger of one of their great adversaries. And that is indeed a fulfillment of the biblical promise that he protect his people. Now, let's think about these two themes as we close. First, let's think about pride and what the consequences are, and let's think about the issue of God's hidden care for his people. This is a picture, Haman is a picture of Proverbs 16.8.
pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride is like a cancer that works its way through a person's soul, corrupts the person, eventually destroys him. It often ruins a prideful person's life and those around him. But God is patient with us. He gives us chances to repent. He gives us opportunities. As Haman had many, many opportunities. Every time he left the palace, he had an opportunity to say, this guy isn't worth it. But he still persisted. God gives us many opportunities to deal with our pride. And Christians are not exempt from pride. You know, all you need to do is turn on Christian television. Okay, enough said. Lots of disaster stories of people that have believed their own press releases become too prideful, and then all kinds of disasters have fallen, and a public embarrassment to Christianity. But don't just think, you know, it's powerful people that have pride. I think it's a core issue for all people. 1 Corinthians 10.12 cautions us, lest anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. You know, if you think, I'm good, I'm solid here, not my problem, watch out, because pride is right at the door. And, you know, you might think, well, don't prideful people become the powerful ones? Don't they get successful in business and rich and they run the government and... Isn't it the prideful that will inherit the earth? <laughs> Seems like that, doesn't it? And that's a topic for a whole other sermon. Psalm 37, good example. Jeremiah said, you know, why is it the way of the wicked prospers? Okay, the thing is, yeah, they may get away with it for a while. Eventually it catches up with them. And even if in this life you don't have a disaster like happens to so many celebrities, so many rich and powerful people. Why is it they're feeding something painful in their soul? They get addicted. Serial marriages and divorces. It's just their life is still falling apart, even though they're rich and powerful and successful. But even if they're not, in the end, they'll have to stand before God to give account for their life, as we all will. Isaiah 2.11 describes the final day of judgment when God vindicates his people. It says, The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted on that day. Now, this is really key. Do you notice the contrast? A prideful person exalts himself. We were made to exalt God. And that's why pride is the opposite of trust in God. It's trusting in yourself. I can do it. I can accomplish it. I am intelligent. I am powerful. I am well-educated. I'm clever. Whatever. In the end, this opposite of trust in God is a type of idolatry, self-idolatry. You put yourself in the place God was intended to be. And that's why God only forgives the sins of those people who come and say, I can't save myself. I need Jesus. Faith in Christ is the opposite of pride. Now, the book of Esther also talks about this theme of God's protection for his people. And it's obvious 
from the end of the book that Chuck will do next week, how the Jews saw this as a time of God's protection and they celebrated how God saved the nation. That's part of the Abrahamic promise, remember? He said that those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I curse. That's the first part, the protection of the nation. The second part, though, is more subtle. And it says, in you, in Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, this part of the Abrahamic promise gets repeated and fleshed out throughout the Old Testament, and more and more details get filled in, like a painting that first it's unclear, you draw the outlines, and then you start filling in the colors, and it gets more and more clear what you're drawing, and then eventually all the details happen. And it becomes clear in, uh, for example, Genesis 22:18, In your seed, in your descendant, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. And the Apostle Paul says that seed is Jesus Christ. Now, here's the point. If Haman had been allowed to exterminate all the Jews, there would be no Christ. There would be no Savior. God's plan from this beginning was to bless all the nations through Abraham's descendant. And that descendant is Jesus Christ. So see, a lot more was at stake here than just preventing a genocide. It was the salvation of the entire world. And that's the story behind the story in Esther. The promise to bless the nations through the descendant of Abraham. Now, you can read this story and misread it by saying, well, God will protect us, I'll be rich, I'll be powerful. Well, wait a minute, wasn't that what happened with Haman? Okay, we've got to watch that because the prosperity gospel isn't what this teaches. In fact, what we have to do is say, what are the promises that we have in Jesus Christ? God is always faithful to his promises. I don't have time to tell them all, but I'll give you two. Jesus said in John 10, 27 and 28, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That is a new covenant version of the same promise to care and protect his people. Nobody is going to snatch you out of Jesus' hand. He will protect you. He will keep you for eternity. You will be safe with him. I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. That's the promise we have that God will protect us and care for us. And Romans 8.28 is one of the, the most famous versions of this promise. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And that's one of those great verses that gets taken out of context all the time. Verse 29 describes what the good is that God has in mind. For uh, God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son. I'm quoting here from the New Living Translation because it's kind of a paraphrase that clarifies what's going on. What this is saying is, God is using everything in your life to make you more like Christ, to purify your character, to free you from pride, to make you free from sin, not just forgiven. That's important. God doesn't just want to take us into heaven all messed up and forgiven. He wants to clean us up, and make us pure. And the book of Esther is a picture of this, where God is saving and protecting his people. It's a picture of Romans 8.28 in action, and kind of shows how it happens through the little coincidences that all kind of pile together 
and create the larger picture of what God wants us to be. So there's these two themes interwoven. And interestingly, I think they're not as different as they seem. They're kind of two paths of life. Pride is about, I can do it, I'm in charge, I run my life, I can accomplish what I need to. Faith is saying, God's in charge, God has control of my life, God cares for me, I trust him for everything. They're not compatible. And I think this story forces us to choose the path. It shows us the destructiveness of pride. It shows God's protection for those who trust him. And I think uh, we have to make that choice. Everything you have and are comes from God. The abilities, the intelligence, the opportunities, the family you were born in, even the freedom that you have by living at a time and place in history where you have choices to make. It all comes from God. And the challenge is to recognize that and to acknowledge that God is really in control. And that's, I think, what this passage challenges us to do. We're not really running things. God is. Let's bow in prayer. Our Father God, it is often hard to see in the midst of all the crazy stuff that gets thrown our way that you are in control. But this story reminds us of the promise that you will care for and protect for your people and that that's a certain thing that will last forever. Lord, encourage us, strengthen us, increase our faith to believe that and protect us from the danger of exalting ourselves to where you ought to be. I pray for each one of us that we would come to know the reality of your care and protection every day and have eyes of faith that would see your work at hand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.